Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to the Big Issues seminar stream. A massive well done to you if you've stuck with us all the way through to this final morning. We did promise you on the first morning we'd talk about some big issues today. Andy's here to talk about me and the environment. I'm sure you would agree with me that what is happening with our environment is an absolutely massive issue that we as Christians should be understanding and engaging with, and that's why we are so chuffed that Andy is here, and I'll introduce him in just a second. If you're new to the Big Issues seminar stream, let me just explain how the seminar will run. In a moment, I'm going to chat to Andy and introduce him. Then he's going to speak. Then towards the end, he's going to invite questions. Please come forward either to this red microphone that I'm pointing to or to the other one here on the right hand, um, my right-hand side. Ask any questions you might like, and then at half past 12, we'll draw the seminar to a close. So I'm going to introduce Andy by way of a little chat. So welcome, Andy. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, thank you for that introduction. Great, uh, great to be here, Adrian. So my name is uh, Andy Bannister, and I live, uh, well, for the last two months, I've lived in Wiltshire. Before that, was it for six years in Scotland, and uh, I head up an organization called SOLAS. That's the Gaelic word, the Scots word for light. And we specialize in two things, Adrian. We first do we take the message of Jesus out of the four walls of the churches into public spaces. We do events in cafes, pubs, restaurants, schools, universities. And then we also teach and we train and we equip Christians to share their faith in Christ persuasively with their friends and to engage with the big issues of the day, like the one we're talking about. Great. So your work is to do with taking all the stuff that we believe as Christians in the Bible, taking it into the public square where all those people don't necessarily believe any of the stuff we believe. Is that right? That's right. And one of the things that I've you know, noticed, and maybe folks here have noticed too, that I think the spiritual temperature has changed a bit since COVID. Certainly when we do events with younger audiences, university campuses, schools, colleges, I think there's a greater openness to spirituality than there's been for a long time. We meet far fewer, say, hostile skeptics, but we meet a lot of people who would say, well, okay, tell me about this Christianity thing. Why should I take Jesus seriously? What does Christian faith say about the big issues of the day, whether it's you know, technology, the environment, sexuality, you know, war on Ukraine? And I think Christians have got a lot to say because the gospel always connects to the big issues of the day. Fantastic. Well, Andy uh, has taught at universities around the world, uh, he has a PhD in Islamic studies, so it's not just this subject you're going to hear about on which he's an expert. It's a bit of a coup for us to get him at New Day, to be honest. So why don't you put your hands together and welcome our guest speaker, Dr. Andy Bannister. Thanks, uh, thanks Adrian, and uh, thank you for that welcome. Hope uh, you're enjoying the sunshine. It's actually been an amazing uh, 10 days, because before coming here to New Day, I was speaking at a big festival down in Cornwall on the other side of the country, where normally every year I go, it rains and it's a mud bath. And uh, like you've had here, it's just been wall-to-wall sunshine. So it's, uh, it's far more fun to be at an event like this when God blesses us uh, with sunshine. And it's my privilege today to speak to you about this topic. When, uh, when Adrian and the New Day folks reached out and asked whether I would come uh, to Norfolk, I would have come whatever the topic, because what a brilliant event you have. But when he asked me to come and speak on this topic, uh, nature and the environment is something I'm passionate about, not just as a, as a Christian who tries to think about these things, but also as someone who loves the outdoors. When I'm not speaking or teaching or doing evangelism, I'm a hiker, I'm a mountaineer, I'm an outdoors guy. So thinking about 
nature and the environment has been on my radar for a long time. So hopefully some of what I say today will help you think about how your faith intersects with this issue. But I also want to think about how, as Christians, we can speak about our faith in Jesus and preach the gospel through this issue. So all of these themes I want to think about this morning. And our way into that, uh, I think, is to take a look at one of my favorite books of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And Genesis chapter 1, that first book uh, of, the, of the Bible, is a beautiful uh, chapter of the Bible. It describes in, in powerful imagery how God spoke into existence stars and planets and the earth and mountains and ecosystems and rainforests and oceans and fish and animals and birds and human beings and estate agents. You know, the, the list goes on and on, all the things. There will be bad jokes as we go, by the way, just to, just to warn you. All of that stuff God creates there in Genesis chapter 1. And then, and then we come to this really significant passage where God talks specifically about human beings, where God says, let us make mankind, humankind in our image, in our likeness, that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over all the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image, male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. So whatever we think about as Christians, when it comes to the environment, that's our starting point. But then we turn to what's going on in the world today. And from Greta Thunberg to David Attenborough, from Extinction Rebellion to politicians declaring climate change emergencies, nature and the environment are issues that people today take ever more seriously. I'm sure it's an issue that you take seriously. It's an issue your friends at school or college or university take seriously. And the reason that people take those issues more seriously than ever are the growing number of challenges facing the environment. I mean, after all, climate change is certainly the most commonly mentioned, but for all the noise and all the fuss made about climate change, there are other issues too that I would argue are equally pressing and perhaps not mentioned as much. We could talk about the loss of biodiversity and collapsing and growing extinction rates. We might talk about deforestation. We might talk about sea level rise. We might talk about pollution, especially plastic in the ocean. And you don't need... Uh, to be an eco-warrior, or spray paint yourself green, or even start gluing yourself to things to realize that we have something of a problem. We have something of a problem. Until recently, I lived in Scotland. As I say, until two months ago, I lived up in Dundee in Scotland for six years. Scotland is often described as the best small country in the world, admittedly by the the Scottish Tourism Office, but I think the point still stands. And there in Scotland, you know, we loved living there as a family. We enjoyed wide open moors, beautiful mountains, and some of the best beaches in the country. But as I, as I explored some of the furthest flung, most remote parts of Scotland and the coastline and the wildest seashores, it didn't take me long to notice plastic everywhere. If you go up to the far northwest of Scotland, if you go to the Hebrides, if you go to the far flung islands, you see tangled fishing nets. You see toothbrushes, bottles, millions upon millions of little bits of plastic littering the the shoreline. 
And the same is true globally. A couple of years ago, uh, images went viral on the internet of uh, hermit crabs on Henderson Island, a remote atoll in the, uh, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And these little hermit crabs were using plastic as their shells. In fact, you can see on the screen there, there's that quite a famous shot. National Geographic uh, publicized this. This is a hermit crab using a doll's head as its, as its shell. Uh, another was using an empty tub of Avon night cream. We have a problem, right? We have a problem. And to give us an insight, I think, into quite what's going on, listen to these words from the, uh, one of the best-selling landscape and nature writers in the world. He's a chap called uh, Robert McFarlane. He's based here in the UK at Cambridge uh, University. He's written many best-selling books on the environment. And I think he sums up quite what we're facing. He writes, What signatures our species will leave in the strata? We remove whole mountaintops to plunder the coal they contain. The oceans dance with hundreds of thousands of tons of plastic waste slowly settling into seafloor sediments. Weaponry tests have dispersed artificial radionuclides globally, while the burning of rainforests for monoculture production sends out smog pools that settle into the soils of nations. A nitrogen spike indicated in ice cores and sediments will be one of the key chemical insignias of the Anthropocene, the geological age we find ourselves in, caused by the mass global use of nitrogen-rich fertilizers and by fossil fuel burning. Biodiversity levels are crashing worldwide as we hasten into the sixth great extinction event, while the soaring number of a small number of livestock species ensures the geological posterity in the fossil record of sheep, cows, and pigs. We have become titanic world makers, our legacy visible, legible for epochs to come. Well, when it comes to Christianity and uh, the environment, when it comes to Christianity and the natural world, sadly, as Christians, we have something of a checkered record uh, historically. I was recently reading a beautiful little book on the environment written by a a journalist called Neil Ansell. And his book, uh, The Last Wilderness, is a wonderful sort of meditation uh, on nature and uh, his interaction with it, particularly as he's losing his hearing and nature and the visual world becomes more important to him. And in the middle of this book that I was just enjoying reading for pleasure, not for any serious reason, I came across this little paragraph in the middle of his book and it really caused me quite a shock. I wonder if you could see as I read it to you what it was that gave me quite a wake-up call. Neil writes, he says, I was surprised to come upon a man in the depths of the woods. He had a shotgun cocked in the crook of his arm and he was wearing a deer stalker. He asked me if I'd seen a big grey fox and happily I was unable to help him. The pine martin lady had warned me that many people locally had a relationship with wildlife that consisted almost exclusively of killing it. It is a rather biblical outlook to see the world solely as a resource placed there for our own benefit. I don't know about you, but that last sentence, I mean, initially it shocked me, and then it grieved me deeply, actually, that Neil, who as far as I know has no 
Christian faith of any kind, that he can describe the wanton destruction of nature uh, as biblical is utterly tragic and utterly, utterly saddening. And it's easy to want to push back and go, well, he's wrong, but I'm more intrigued where he's got that idea from. Where has he gotten, and where have others like him gotten the idea into their heads that Christians are men and women who don't care about the environment? Well, sadly, there are loads of examples that fuel uh, that belief, that fuel that idea. For example, a few years ago, uh, at a conference in Dallas in Texas, uh, the highly controversial megachurch pastor, Mark Driscoll, said these words. Mark said, he said, I know who made the environment. I know who made the environment, and he's coming back, and he's going to burn it all up. So yes, I drive an SUV. Thank you, Mark, for those remarkably helpful and thoughtful words. Um, This negative attitude that uh, has sometimes characterized the response of some Christians towards the environment actually has its roots in a misunderstanding of the first book of the Bible that we read a, a few minutes ago. Because in Genesis 1 verse 26, if you remember where we were a few minutes ago, we read how God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And the problem is that historically, some, a minority, but still some Christians have taken the word dominion in that passage and used it to suggest that nature is purely there uh, for our benefit. You know, on this view of the world, minerals and materials only exist so we can mine them. Fossil fuels only exist so we can burn them. Uh, forests only exist so we can cut them down. And uh, animals only exist, or at least the, the tasty ones, so we can throw them onto the barbecue. Um, nature only exists for our benefit. But I don't want to argue that this is a deeply flawed understanding of the word dominion. After all, dominion, yes, it does mean to rule over, um, but built into it is the idea of care and responsibility. Now, let me give you an illustration of what happens when you misunderstand that. Uh, imagine that, uh, you know, after the talk today, uh, Adrian, who I've briefly met, but he sounds, looks like a nice chap, he comes up to me and he asks if I can borrow, he can borrow my car. So I toss him the keys to my, my, my Volvo and I lend Adrian my, my car for a couple of hours. Now, in a sense, what I've done, I've given Adrian, I've given him dominion over my car. I've given him power over my vehicle. Well, if he brings it back uh, later that day, dented, scratched, and the seat's covered in vomit, I may want to ask him a few conversations, a few questions. And if he simply looks at me and goes, well, you gave me dominion, mate. I thought I could do what I wanted. Probably we might have to have some further questions. And I'd suggest that idea, that same idea, is built right into the book of Genesis. God has created an amazing world, a beautiful world, a world in Genesis that he repeatedly describes as good. And throughout the Bible, we read time and time again how much God loves and cares for and is concerned for the world that he has made. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus even remarks that, you know, God knows when a, when a sparrow falls to the ground. God cares so much about creation, he even sees that level of detail. Which means, as Christians, if we are going to take the Bible seriously, 
then we have a powerful mandate to take creation seriously and take our responsibility to it seriously because it is God's gift to us. And all of this, I want to suggest to you this lunchtime, all of this matters profoundly. It matters profoundly. I want to give you four reasons why and push into the last one in a little bit more detail. Four reasons why it matters. The first reason why all of this matters and is not theoretical is it matters because if we claim to love God, if we claim that we love God, then we are going to have to love what he cares about. You know, if we ignore the things that God cares about, what does it mean when we say that we love God? And one of the most beloved verses in the New Testament, John 3.16, tells us what God cares about. Very famous verse of the Bible where it says, for God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. And we love to quote that, you know, evangelistically, and it's a hugely important verse uh, telling us what God did in and through Jesus, but it starts by telling us that God loves the world that he made. So if we don't love the world that God made, human beings, yes, but the whole of creation, then quite frankly, we are hypocrites if we don't take creation seriously. Secondly, taking creation seriously is one of the best antidotes I know to the materialism and consumerism that so infect our culture. You know, we live in an age that tells us, buy, 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 you know, we always want the latest gadget, the latest thing, you know, we're so used to hopping onto Amazon and purchasing anything we want at the click of a button, and as Christians, we can buy into this culture too, although we're called to be countercultural. Sometimes I often wonder if our friends looked at our spending patterns, my spending patterns, your spending patterns, would they see any kind of difference? And I wonder if they really would. But taking creation seriously, taking the natural world seriously, is quite a good place to begin pushing back on this culture that says you, you know, are defined by what you own. And uh, say creation care is a good antidote to that. Third reason why all of this matters third reason, though, why all of this matters is perhaps the most, most important one. And that's that I think that only the Christian faith can give you any really good basis for caring for the natural world. For giving, it can give you a reason to justify why we should take the natural world seriously. And this is a really important one, I think, to get our heads around as Christians. You see, I don't know if you've noticed this, but behind every environmental issue or concern or campaign lies the implicit assumption that the issue that's being talked about is that whether it's climate change, plastic in the oceans, deforestation, whatever it is, the assumption is that this is an issue you should care about. And many of you are in school or university, probably you get lots of environmental stuff thrown at you, but the assumption in the stuff that you're taught will be you should care about this issue. But we can ask the question, why? Why care about the environment. Whenever anyone tells you you should care about something, it's always good to be the annoying person who raises their hand and goes, but why should I care? Well, the secular environmental movement over the years has not been ignorant of the fact they need to answer the why question. And over the years, there have been a number of attempts by our friends in the environmental movements who don't have any faith to try and give a reason for why we should care for the natural world. Let me, uh, let me show you a few of them. For example, the first approach that's been taken is been to appeal to emotion. Lots of environmental campaigns go this route. So, for example, we're told, you know, we're told to feel guilty. Don't drive you know, an SUV. You know, think about your consumption. Uh, otherwise, the polar bears will drown. 
Or you take someone like Greta Thunberg, you know, very world-famous environmental campaigner. Uh, she goes the guilt route quite often, actually. Greta is very good at arguing that adults are destroying the future uh, for young people. So appealing to guilt is quite a common technique. Uh, other environmental uh, groups have gone a different direction and will try and appeal to our compassion. So environmental campaigns that work this way, will often, they'll often show you pictures of cute baby animals. So here's a little Sammy the seal looking at you adoringly with his wide eyes from that poster. And uh, you know, who would not want to change their behavior so that Sammy the seal has a future? It's interesting, I've always noticed, I've noticed for some time actually, it's always cute baby animals who have this, uh, this gig, right? It's the seals, it's the kittens, it's the little baby po- polar bears. Really ugly animals. You don't see frogs or tortoises fronting environmental campaigns. There's a, there's a, I think there's a reason uh, for that. But environmentalism, sorry, emotion is a terrible basis for environmentalism. Because, of course, what if you don't feel the emotion? What if seals are not your thing? Uh, what if you, you know, you, your guilt you know, circuits are not operating normally and you just don't feel the emotion that someone's trying to make you feel? Or, of course, if you're pro-environment and you're trying to persuade a friend to think the right way on the environment and your friend says, well, I just don't care. Emotion doesn't get you very far. We need something far stronger. Well, realizing that, many environmental campaigns have moved on in recent years and they've tried to appeal to how care for the natural world is a good thing because it benefits us. That's the next uh, line of approach. So, for example, um, we're told that you know, we should care about pesticides in the food chain because that causes human illness. We're told that we should be concerned about climate change because that causes sea level rise, which floods human towns and cities. We're told that we should care about the collapse in the number of bees and wasps and other pollinators because they, they pollinate our fruits and our crops. In other words, on this line of attack, the idea is you should care about the natural world because it ultimately benefits humanity. Now, that is probably a stronger argument than appealed to emotion, but it's also inherently selfish. It's utterly selfish because presumably bits of nature that have no benefit for humanity are totally fair game. It also, of course, doesn't engage people whose life is so rich and set up nicely, they don't need to care. What do you say to someone who says, well, I live on a hill. I don't care about sea level rise. Uh, I only eat meat so, you know, bees and wasps can go, can go fly or whatever. And I'm rich enough and my lifestyle set up in such a way that I don't need to care. And this approach to the environment has nothing to say to that kind of selfishness. So that's led to a third way that some environmental groups over the years have tried to, to ground environmentalism. And someone like Greta Thunberg would, would have gone this route too in recent years, for example, arguing that we owe it to future generations. You know, we, um, those of us who are, who are older, um, you know, we have, a, we have a duty to bequeath to the next generation um, a world that is at least as good, if not better, than the one that we inherited. And you can see this argument made all across the environmental movement. And it's not a bad argument, but again, it sort of begs the question, why? And it also begs the question, of what do you say to somebody who says, well, I don't plan to have kids? I've, my wife and I have got quite a few friends who have decided not to have children. So what do you say to someone who says, well, I actually don't care about the future generations because they're not related to me and I don't plan on having kids? There's no real response to that. So this argument runs out of steam quite quickly. And now the argument, the attempts to ground environmentalism in a purely kind of secular way 
I think, run rapidly out of steam and get more and more desperate. For example, some environmental groups, uh, I saw Greenpeace, I think, doing this recently, have tried to argue that we should care about the natural world because we are closely related to it, especially to animals. So, for example, uh, we share 96% of our DNA in common with a chimpanzee. But the only question there is, why does my having something in common with it mean that I owe any duty of care to it? For example, you and I have carbon atoms in common with tables, and you share 60% of your DNA with the humble banana. Does that mean you have a duty of care to tables or to bananas? I don't actually think you do. And the problem that is often run into when we talk about environmental issues and environmental justice and all this stuff is that at its heart, environmentalism is a moral issue. At its heart, environmentalism is a moral issue, and moral claims need a foundation. Whenever someone tells you, you should do this or you shouldn't do the other thing, you have the right to say, well, okay, why? What's the foundation for that? And often you find in environmentalism, there's a lot of facts flying around, but not a lot of foundations for the claim that therefore we should change our behavior. So, for example, it may be perfectly true that my generation and your generation, we consume five times more energy than our grandparents. It may also be true that if you assign weights, if you assign weights to the amount of energy that is used, the average person in China weighs 100 pounds, the average person in Europe weighs 1,000 pounds. Those may be perfectly true, but when we then try and move from the bare facts to insisting that people change their behavior, that we should change how we live, that we should drive a bit less, that we should change our habits of consumption, that we should consider the natural world an end rather than a means, that we should switch to electric cars or whatever it is. Well, those are all moral claims, and moral claims need a foundation. The moment you tell someone they should change their behavior, you have to be able to say why. And I want to suggest to you this afternoon that only Christianity offers that foundation, uh, can offers you the strength and the resources for a foundation, for a strong duty of care for the environment. You see, if somebody said to me, well, Andy, you care about the environment, why should I care? I'm going to begin by saying, well, firstly, I don't think we live in a godless world, universe. I think we live in a world with, God, with a God behind it. We live in a world where God is real. We live in a moral universe because the God who created everything, creation and me and you, that God has commanded us to care for, to steward, to look after the world that he has given us. And because the natural world is God's good, good, good gift to us, when someone gives you a gift, the natural response, if you are functioning normally and are not a sociopath, is your natural response to someone giving you an amazing gift should be gratitude. And that God's creation is God's good gift to us matters tremendously because gifts tell us a lot about the giver and what they think about you. When someone gives you a beautiful gift, it's a lovely thing to receive, but it also tells you what that person thinks about you. And that also means that not merely does this amazing world we live in tell us a lot about the kind of God behind it, it also means that when we forget that the natural world 
is God's good gift to us. When we take God out of the picture, or when we neglect the gift that God has given us, the result can be a really, really deep sickness. And I think we see some of that in our society today. About 10 years ago now, the, um, a new edition of a book called the, uh, the Oxford Junior Dictionary uh, came out. Um, when you were a little bit younger, many of you, when you're perhaps in primary school, late into primary school, you might have had this on your shelves in your library. It's a very standard uh, resource in schools across the country. And about 10 years ago, Oxford University Press put out a new edition of the Oxford Children's Dictionary. And it wasn't long before journalists and reviewers noticed something. They noticed that a whole raft of words had gone missing from the Oxford Junior Dictionary. The editors had removed huge numbers of words all connected with nature. Words, missing words were words like acorn had gone, beech, fern, newt, otter, willow, vast numbers of nature-related words that had been removed from the dictionary. In their place, for the first time, appeared a whole number of words to do with technology. Uh, celebrity, chat room, email, instant message, attachment. Uh, all of these words that weren't there 10 years before had been inserted. When challenged on this, why words to do with nature have been taken out and replaced by technology words, um, the head of children's dictionaries at Oxford University Press said... She said this, she said, we wanted the dictionary to reflect the consensus of experience of modern day childhood. There is marketing speak if ever I heard it. And I remember reading that and thinking, something has gone badly wrong in our culture if we're raising a generation of young people who know what an instant message or an email is or what social media is, but who can't identify a fricking tree. Something has gone badly wrong. Because I think when you lose that connection to nature, there are consequences. And I think everywhere we see, particularly in Western culture, but more widely, you see people struggling because we've lost our connection to the natural world. And when you lose that connection, if you're not careful, you can lose in consequence the connection to the God who made it. And the Bible makes that close connection between God and nature incredibly clear. In a very famous passage in the Psalms, in Psalm 19, uh, we read this amazing psalm pointing out the incredible testimony that comes from nature when you take it seriously about the God who's behind it. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no voice. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all of the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Just over a hundred years ago, uh, a a minister bearing the remarkable name of the Reverend Maltby Davenport Babcock, they knew how to name people in the early 1900s, I tell you. He was an American pastor, and he was walking uh, through the beautiful countryside of, of the Niagara escarpment near his home. In fact, before I lived in uh, Scotland, my family lived for six years in Canada. We lived in Ontario on the other side of the Niagara River uh, to where he was walking that day 100 years ago. And so moved by the countryside that he saw, the the landscape in front of him, uh, he put pen to paper and he wrote a poem. And that poem got turned into a hymn 
that in, on the North America, on the American side of the Atlantic, is one of the most famous hymns of the last hundred years. It's in many hymn books over here. Some of you may have heard this, others of you it may be new to, but for me it's one of my favorite hymns because it really picks up this connection between nature and God. Uh, let me read you the words to what he wrote. He wrote, this is my father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings, and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world, I rest in me the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hand the wonders wrought. This is my father's world, the birds their carols raise, the morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. This is my father's world, he shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass I hear him pass, he speaks to me everywhere. This is my father's world, oh let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world, the battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be won. That hymn has actually been incredibly famous. Even though some of it may be new to many of you, the tune is interesting because um, the film composer Howard Shaw picked up the first few bars of the tune and used it for the Shire theme in the Lord of the Rings uh, movie. If you've seen Fellowship of the Ring, if there's any Tolkien fans kind of here, and that's sort of become famous again with Amazon, you know, doing the prequels. But Howard Shaw used the tune from this hymn as part of that very famous film score. And what's interesting is I speak to many secular friends who've come across this. It's quite a well-known poem, quite a well-known hymn. I have many secular friends, many many atheist friends who actually love the first two verses of that hymn. You can get it printed on posters and pictures of beautiful natural landscapes with bits of the hymn printed on it. But I've also had friends then say to me, you know, they love the first two verses, but isn't that last verse that's on the screen there, isn't that last verse, as one friend put it to me, he said, isn't this just the shoehorning of Christian theology into what would otherwise be a lovely nature hymn? You know, a lot of my friends are quite happy with verse one and verse two, but verse three gets very theological. And I would always say to my friends, I say, no, that last verse, verse three of that hymn is crucial Because there is one last question that everything that's going on with nature and the environment right now raises. And that's the question, what has gone wrong with the world? God created this beautiful world, a world he described as good in Genesis. But the world is full of environmental problems. What has gone wrong? Why does the environment seem so broken? And what can we do to solve it? And it's very easy to assume the answer is, well, we, perhaps we ban plastic packaging, uh, you know, we reduce carbon emissions, we send Greta on another tour of the world on her yacht. Um, but what if something more profound, what if something much deeper is needed to solve the environmental crisis that we see? Well, one of the most influential cl- uh, climate and environmental campaigners of the last 20 years is a gentleman called Gus Speth. During the Barack Obama uh, presidency, he was uh, Obama's key ad- chief advisor on environmental issues. He's both a scientist and an environmental lawyer and activist, has been involved in many, many high-profile uh, environmental campaigns over the years. Brilliant scientist, probably knows more about the environment than almost anyone living today uh, as a result of his science and his activism. He's also somebody who has no religious faith, as far as I know, 
I think he would describe himself as, a, as an agnostic. He's not an atheist. He's not a believer. Doesn't really know what he believes. So that makes what he said in terms of a diagnosis of what's gone wrong with the world all the more compelling. Because in an interview a few years ago, he was asked that question. You know, what do you see as the, the greatest environmental challenge we're facing these days? Let me read you what he said. Gus wrote, said to this journalist, he said, I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address those problems, but I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with those, we need a cultural and a spiritual transformation. And we scientists, we don't know how to do that. You know, the natural world, says the Bible, is like a signpost. It's like a signpost, says the Bible. It's beauty and it's wonder and it's awesomeness. You know, they are a pointer to the God who made it and a reminder, a testimony written in nature of how much God loves us that he would give us a gift like this. But the brokenness in God's world is also a signpost. It's another signpost. It's a signpost to the brokenness in you and I and humanity and how we are separated not just from God, but also separated from the world that he has made through our selfishness, our greed, and our apathy. What the Bible, of course, calls sin. But the good news is, the Bible, of course, doesn't just diagnose our problem and go, you're all a bunch of miserable rotters, look at the mess you've made, and leave it there. But the Bible goes on to tell the incredible story, of course, as many of us know well, of what God has done in the person of Jesus. When God stepped into this broken crazy messed up world and went to the cross to pay the price of our sin and our brokenness. And in the cross, says the Bible, is the answer not just to our separation from God, but actually lies the beginning of the answer to the environmental crisis. The uh, the healing offered in the cross, both for us and the damage that we've wrought in creation. You see, if we truly believe that this is our Father's world, if we look around us and we go, yes, this is my Father's world, and if we want others, if we want our friends and our neighbors and our peers and our schoolmates and our family members who don't know Christ, if we want them to discover the goodness of who God is and uh, what he's done for us, then we actually need to take this world seriously. As the Christian environmentalist, uh, J. Matthew Sleeth, asked in his wonderful little book, Serve God, Save the Planet. He writes, can you identify a greater number of trees or cars? Interesting question to ask yourself. Can you identify a greater number of trees or cars? You see, if the Bible says that God knows every flower and every bird, why do we spend so much effort knowing the names of man-made things? Maybe we are paying attention to the wrong things. Maybe this is why life seems so hard. If this is our Father's world, maybe we should pay more attention to it. So as we wrap up and we open up some questions 
in a minute. I want to close by encouraging us to celebrate what God has made with gratitude. What an amazing world God has given us. Even in its brokenness, the beauty that it shows is incredible. Let's celebrate what God has made with gratitude. Let's repent for where we haven't taken our duty of care for creation seriously. But at the same time, let's point out to our friends who are not Christians that Christianity offers only the, the only real basis for care for the environment in the first place. And then I want to say, as Christians, we need to wade into the environmental movement and engage with it. Because too often over the years, Christians have retreated from the green movement. We need more Christians in it, engaging with it fully and wholeheartedly, passionately, not leaving it to our friends who are not Christians. For the environment is such a deeply, deeply Christian issue. For as the scripture says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Well, thank you for listening so patiently on a very warm uh, afternoon. We're going to move into time of Q&A in a minute, if there are any questions. Um, We've covered a lot, packed a lot into the last uh, 38 minutes. If some of the stuff I threw up, particularly on the slide deck, is of use, there were some quotes there, particularly often I always have people coming to me saying, hey, can I grab that Gus Speth quote? Because what what a way to pivot from green issues to the gospel. If you go to uh, the organization that I lead, SOLAS, Uh, which is the Scottish word for light. If you go to solas-cpc.org forward slash New Day 2022, you can download the slides. And on the New Day blog, they're also going to put a blog post up shortly with some links, I think, to the slides and lots of other resources so you can go deeper into this stuff. But we have about 18 minutes. So if you have any questions of anything I've said wasn't clear, which is probably totally possible, uh, you can come and, and ask a question. Uh, if Adrian wants to come and ask why I picked on him with my Volvo illustration, now's the opportunity. Um, but do come. If you've got any questions, anything not clear, anything you want to push deeper into, I would love to, uh, I'd love to help out. Brilliant. So, uh, that way, fantastic. Why don't you start with your name so I know who I'm addressing and then fire away. Um, I'm Phoebe. Hey, Phoebe. Fire away. Uh, and I just wondered, why is there no instruction in the Bible on how to care for the world? What a brilliant question, Phoebe. Thank you for that. Why is there no instruction on, on, that, on the nuts and bolts of how to care for the world? Well, actually, I think I would push back is too strong, but I, I guess I'd challenge that slightly by saying, actually, there's quite a surprising amount. Beginning in Genesis, the big picture is set up where this is God's gift to us. It's our responsibility to care for it. So that's the big picture. Underneath that, if you read through the Old Testament, there are bits of the Old Testament that are quite hard to wade through with all the laws and regulations. There's quite a lot there on uh, an environmental care. I mean, practical stuff like you're probably aware that for the, uh, the Jewish people there in the Old Testament, um, you know, the Sabbath was a very strong thing, right? You weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. One of the exceptions is if your ox falls into a pit on the Sabbath, you're allowed to get it out. You don't leave the poor thing suffering. Care for the darn animal. There's actually quite a lot of instruction there about creation care when you go, when you go look for it. And then I think in the New Testament too, I think when you start reading carefully, there's more than you would, uh, you'd more, there was more than you'd realize. And what's interesting, if you think about where there was in the moment where Jesus was asked by, uh, you know, by one of the teachers of the law, you know, what are the most, what's the most important law 
in the Jewish law, in the Old Testament. And there are hundreds of things, right? And you wonder what Jesus would have gone for. Remember the story, of course. I always think Jesus' answer is a bit cheeky. He doesn't give the guy one. He gives the guy two. Love God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And love your neighbor as yourself. And I think a lot of environmentalism flows out of those two things. If we love God, we'll love the things that he cares about. And if we love our neighbor, we take that command seriously. Then, you know, we need to think about you know, our choices that we make and the way we consume, the way that we live. Because often it's people in poorer countries who face the, you know, the climate change issues much harder than we do. And so you've got great foundations there. But some of the detail, yeah, the Bible leaves us to work out. Not least, of course, the issues facing the environment 2,000 years ago when the Bible you know, was, came to an end and not the ones today. Um, but the key thing, Phoebe, is I'd go, what we don't have as Christians, is any mandate in the Bible to turn our back on the environment and go, we just care about heaven, the whole world can go get stuffed. That is not Christian. That is heresy. That is not the, the biblical view of creation. But to say, if you want one last thing, and then I'll go over here. The, the book I recommended, Michael, uh, this will be on the blog as well, J. Matthew Sleeth's, Sleeth's book, um, Love God, I Serve God, Save the Planet. It's got lots of practical stuff in there. So there's really good books and resources uh, out there too, that you can find with Christians doing great environmental work, lots of practical stuff. So go make a difference. Thank you for the first question. Yes, uh, over here. Hello, my name's Helen. Um, Hi, Helen. Has there been a personal experience in your life where you've spiritually, spiritually teached others about God and it's actually really changed their way of life and their living and how they should be saving the environment? Yeah, I think I've had the privilege of a number of things, actually. I remember doing um, one of my favorite places I've taught on this. Uh, I lived in Scotland for six years, and so I had the opportunity, actually during, during lockdown, because it was a, they, were, they were sort of bubbling, there's a, there was a year out program that took place at a Scottish outdoor center in the Highlands, and I got to go and teach 20 uh, young people there, aged from sort of 19 to 25, and we did a session based on today's material, over two hours, more interactive, and we did it in the Highlands. So we did a five-mile walk, and then sat down and talked. And what was interesting there was helping them think through what are some of the choices they can make. Because I think one of the things I think sometimes hell it happens, and if you've had this experience too, you see an environmental issue, you feel, oh gosh, you know, I need to do something, but it all feels so big. What do you do? And one of the things I was able to do there in that group was just work through what are some of the small changes that each of us can make. Because I think we can all do that. And I told the story of got a friend of mine in the States uh, who lives in Pennsylvania, lives in Mennonite country. And the Mennonites, if you know anything about that Christian movement, are very close to the environment. They've done a lot of good ecology work over the years. And my friend Nathan told me the story once that really stuck with, struck with me. And I shared it with these kids in Scotland. He said he used to get, remember going walking with his grandfather as a young, when he was young. And his grandfather would always stop and pick up litter when he saw it in the street or on the path. But as he did, he would pick up the litter and he would say out loud, this is my father's world. And his grandfather's view was, okay, I can't do anything about the melting of the ice caps, but I can pick up that bit of plastic. I can make that difference there. And I think getting that into the heads of those young people, and we prayed that through in that environment, it's just amazing. I mean, he is pretty good, but this is not the Highlands. Um, so yeah, so I think what I encourage you to do, Helen, is just think about, don't feel guilty with the environmental stuff. Think about, if this is my father's world, what is the one thing, what's one thing I could do? And pray openly, asking the Spirit to convict, because all of us maybe have things where actually, if we listen to the Lord, he may be saying, you know, do you really you know, need to be doing that? Do you need to be ordering from Amazon four times a week or something? I hope some of that reflection helps. Thank you for your question. 
Hello, yes, Jim. sir, what's your name? I'm Rory. Hello, Rory. Yes, ironically, a Scottish person in England top, but never mind. <laughs> oh, I know. bring a bit of civilization to the Sassanax, that's what I say. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, you struck a chord a bit with the appeals to emotion. I've had that from a friend who was an environmental campaigner yes. and social justice warrior, if you want to put it that way. And he tried to guilt me with these arguments about, oh, this pipeline in Canada it will cause cancer. And like, didn't work on me. Needless to say, my appeals to the gospel and Jesus weren't so guilt-ridden, and he now walks with Jesus today, and he has a better view of how to care for the environment from a Christian point of view. And a lot of that brings me on to my actual point, and answer a question, yes. which is about... So a lot of these critiques of um, how we wreck the environment, saying, oh, it's dom- you dominate the environment because it's biblical, but isn't that quite biblical to say that, oh, you should care about the environment, be compassionate, even compassionate about these... Yes. Poor Pacific, Pacific Islanders who will lose their very homes because they're the weakest. Yes. When really, if we want, if we care about survival of the fittest, well, just let them die. Yes. Um, it appears to be like, like the title of yes. a recent book called The Air We Breathe. It's grace, compassion. Brilliant book. You know, yeah, it is. It's a friend of mine too. Anyway, um, so it seems like they're being very Christian yes. when they're critiquing because they're yeah. viewing it in Christian categories rather than. Yeah, taking apart Christian categories. Yeah. Basically, in a nutshell, Rory, I'd affirm everything you've said. Firstly, the book you recommended, by the way, highly recommend. So the book that uh, Rory mentioned there, The Air We Breathe, written by a good friend of mine called Glenn Scrivener. And that book really shows how the argument I've run for the environment today, you can run on loads of different justice-related issues. And that actually, we you may laugh at this, we actually live in a profoundly Christian society in some ways, that what most of our friends think when it comes to you know, justice, racism, fairness, Poverty, they're all operating on Christian foundations without realizing it. On the environment, one of my favorite stories, I had a friend of mine who was on a, traveling on a, on, a, on, a, on a train in Europe. He was going, going to a speaking engagement in Romania, eight-hour train ride. He's in a compartment with one other passenger, so he gets talking to the guy. He's a university student. And so my friend Michael said to this guy, oh, what are you studying at university? And the guy went, oh, in, in environmental science. And my friend said, oh, right, why, why are you studying that? Well, because it's the most important issue facing our day. And Michael just basically ran what I've shared with you today. He went, well, why is it important? Well, we need to care about the environment. I, I agree, but why should we care about the environment? Well, because it's, it's, it's a real mess. Yeah, but why is that a problem? And very quickly, what well, ends up with the, with the students saying, well, but, but everybody knows. And Michael went, well, let's assume I don't. Convince me. And very quickly, that ran into a wall. And the trick, Rory, is not to turn that into a gotcha, but is to find that gentle gospel way of going, look, I totally agree with you. The environment does matter. I totally agree with you. Racism is outrageous. I totally agree with you. Poverty, we should care about. But without a Christian foundation that says that human beings are made in the image of God, no matter their gender, race, or whatever, this world is God's good world. It is not a random accident. Without that foundation, the thing that you care about is meaningless. So come on home. Come on home. You're into Acts 17, you know, where Paul alters the unknown God. You know, the thing that you worship is unknown. Let me tell you who it is. So what I would say, absolutely, don't, don't try and be clever and play gotchas with people, but try and preach the gospel through the issue and show people, look, you just need to come back to the Christian faith and to Christ because then all of those things that you care about make sense. Thanks for that, Rory. Yes, sir. What's your name? My name's Caleb. Caleb. And, um, I, I love your passion and stuff. The, the concern that I have is uh, a lot of young people getting sucked into these environmental movements yep. that they worship the creation yep. instead of the creator. 
and they get confused and sucked into it and it pulls yeah. them away technically away from the gospel. So what would you recommend mm. for being cautious or yeah. what are the dangers of going full into the environmentalism world that is not Christian yes. as a whole? On the one hand, I totally agree with you, Caleb. It's a huge concern. But two things that interest me. Firstly, notice that, I mean, and you've recognized, right, what I find fascinating is the environmental movement is not secular. It's, it's into spirituality, but of all kind of weird and wonderful kinds, often quite new agey, quite Buddhist. Um, and I noticed a few years ago, because I read a lot of nature stuff, and I was like, man, these guys are not hardcore atheists. These guys believe anything and everything. We are into you know, sort of Greco-Roman world territory, where the first, where the first, where the first early Christians, the world they were engaging was not a world of atheism, it was a world where people believed everything. Now, they didn't see that as a problem, they saw that as an opportunity. Acts 17 again. So I would say, the way to be engaging that world is going, you are absolutely right that the spirituality matters. But what we need to ask about is what spirituality? And with our young people in our churches, is equipping people to be able to talk about why Christ is true, why Christ in the world of other faiths stands up, that's an important preparation, completely get you. The one other thing I'd say is interesting. The point that the environmental movement now is riddled with all kinds of beliefs, the, the tragic irony is when it started, it was Christian. There was an amazing book written, looking more at the USA, but most of the arguments apply over here. It was a book written by an American writer called Mark Stahl a few, about four or five years ago now, called Inherit the Holy Mountain. And it looks at the history of the American environmental movement. And virtually all the founding fathers and mothers of the environmental movement were Christian. So the, Ameri- the National Park Movement in the States, that was John Muir, uh, was a good, good Scottish Presbyterian. Um, Rachel Carson, whose book Silent Spring, kick-started the modern environmental movement, raises a Christian, goes to a Christian college, gets wobbly in later life. But Mark's argument is it was thoroughly Christian, saturated in Christianity. Then what happens is the mistake was made where Christians who tended to lean right politically began seeing that as a left issue and began withdrawing such that now it's been colonized. And Mark's argument would be mine. We need to get back in there. We need to get back in. We need Christians in there. But we need to, yes, be preparing people for what they're going to encounter, supporting them so we can think critically. But to me, I'd say that's the same whether you're going into the environmental movement or if you're going into the workplace. The workplace today is saturated with competing beliefs. That's why it's so important as Christians, that we know what we believe. First Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give a reason. And then for those of us who are leaders, who are training the next generation, let's make sure that the young adults that we're, we're discipling, we're mentoring, we're helping and supporting, make sure they are men and women who can say, yeah, I'm confident of my belief in Christ. Because I think Christianity doesn't need to be afraid of those other worldviews. That's why you know, Islam is my big thing and engaging with Muslims for, for years. And that never, that never threatened me, but I did need to be prepared. So I hope that helps. Thanks for that, Caleb. Yes, what's your name? May. May, that is a very high microphone, May. I can, everyone on that side is sort of, as someone who's five foot seven, I, I sympathize. Can I move it? Probably. Oh, yes, you can. Look at that. Okay. <laughs> um, my question's more practical. Go for it, May. church has, like, quite a lot of influence. It does. Around and then within the people there. Yeah. So do you think churches should be focusing more on getting the people in the church to do small things to help the environment? Or should churches as a whole be campaigning for like the companies that do the really big damage to not yeah. be doing the really big damage? Oh, what a brilliant question. I'd say both and. 
I think a lot depends, a lot depends on context and where your church is. And also you want to be obviously praying and listening to, to what the, the Lord would have for your congregation. But I think on that latter thing, historically, the church has punched above her weight. You know, we, 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 you probably don't appreciate because it happens on 20 years, 20, 25 years ago now. So many of you are not here. And like old fogies like me. But, you know, fair trade. We all now, you know, fair trade coffee is taken like, as a given. That was a massive campaign that churches were heavily involved in 25 years ago. You know, when I was a young Christian, you know, that was fair trade coffee was not a thing. But a lot of the big denominations got involved with others. It wasn't just Christians. Then um, 22 years ago, there was a big campaign called Jubilee 2000, which was about debt relief and, you know, the, the, all this debt that we saddle poorer countries with. Again, Christians started that campaign, massive issue. That was more sort of poverty than environmental justice, but again, showed that Christians can make a big noise. And then at the local level, I think you're dead right. My story of Nathan and his grandfather. I think if we got Christian men and women thinking about how in our own lives do we make a bit of a difference, A, that gives us credibility. B, we're living out what it means to be Christians in God's world. And then, of course, the other thing locally, connecting with perhaps Caleb's question a moment ago, you know, rather than perhaps wade into big environmental campaigns, what if there's a, you know, there's a local campaign to you know, clean up the local beach? Then why don't, as Christians, we go along, volunteer? Because you'll meet lots of non-Christians, and often our challenges in evangelism, we don't have non-Christian friends. Well, great way to meet people. And then people are probably going to ask, well, why did you come? And you go, well, I'm a Christian. I love God's world. And this plastic is ridiculous. So I'm here as my act of worship, picking up. Trust me, there's a conversation star right there. So I think, yeah, I think both those things. Um, the challenge is simply looking around you locally in your congregation, May, and going, what works for our, for our people? And then also encourage your, your pastor or whatever to be talking about on a Sunday. I think this is this issue needs to be talked a little bit about from the, the pulpit. So I hope that helps. Thank you. Yes, sir. What's your name? Uh, Zach. Zach. Hello. Hello, Zach. So this isn't going to be my opinion, but it's one I come across a lot, which is yes. why I'm asking it. So, okay, go for it. Because we have the Old Testament telling us the earth is for lords and everything in it, yep. and we have the New Testament telling us that Jesus is making a new creation that will replace this one, mm-hmm. you could draw the conclusion from that that uh, this issue lies with God and not with man, what would be your response yeah. to that? Because I would disagree with that, but wouldn't know how to respond to it. Good, me, me profoundly too. Well, the funny thing is, Paul doesn't address that argument directly, but he addresses an equivalent argument where my, I've been standing in the sun for too long, so my brain's fried. But there's that bit in one of Paul's letters where he, I think it's in Galatians, um, where he's talking about you know, the argument that he's heard from some, you know, some sort of weirdo Christians are going, well, you can sin as much as you like, right? Because the body doesn't really matter. And if you sin, the more you sin, the more grace increases. And Paul's like, what? What do you want? What are you smoking? That's a paraphrase, um, uh, by the way. And I think that would be the New Testament answer of going, yes, there's a new heavens and a new earth, but we're also going to have new resurrection bodies. Read 1 Corinthians 15. But there's a continuity because although we're going to have new, you know, new resurrection bodies, nowhere does the New Testament say, well, you can do what you like. You can just treat your body and abuse it. Paul says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, so treat it accordingly. Um, and I think the same argument applies to, to creation, that we've got new heavens and new earth, but it's a restored earth and it's restored heavens. And we forget in the New Testament, of course, that the vision of New Testament Christianity is not that we escape upstairs and spend our lives floating on a cloud. The new Jerusalem in Revelation 21 comes down and God's going to dwell with us again. We're going to have, you know, we had the Garden of Eden in the beginning and then we've got new creation at the, at the end. So I think that gives you a really good pushback on saying, no, God takes creation seriously. 
And the other pushback, incidentally, Zach, is if you push that to its logical conclusion, you end up in a very ancient heresy called Gnosticism, which is the idea that matter doesn't matter, that, you know, spirit matters. So the ideas that you think about matter, but the world around you doesn't. That's not Christianity. That's, that was condemned throughout church history as being utterly heretical. And it, this heresy is shown by the fact that when God steps into creation, he steps physically in the person of Jesus. Jesus could have come as a ghost, right, floating around in a spiritual form, you know, teaching people. He didn't. He came as flesh and blood, and the, his resurrected body was flesh and blood. Um, and so as Christians, we have every, every mandate biblically to take creation seriously. I hope that helps a little bit if you hear that again. Hello, what's your name? Oh, uh, hi, I'm Michelle, and I was just wondering, since at the end of this um, like, seminar you said that um, everything God made, he thought it was good when he made it. Yes. Uh, say in the farming industry or in different industries where animals are yes. affected and um, a lot of chemicals are being put into the ground yeah. and into the earth, does that mean that since you've made it um, stray away from how it was in the beginning, does that mean that doing such a thing is a sin? Oh, what a, what a great question, Michelle. And I'm gonna, I hope I don't offend anybody by coming around and saying, yes, I think we can misuse creation in such a way that it's a, a sin. And I think the challenge actually for all of us, Michelle, is to think about all of our consumption. Because it's very easy when we think about, say, farming, to think about, um, okay, so we look at, say, the way that animals are mistreated. But I'm glad you mentioned pesticides. Because it's very easy here, if you're, say, a vegan, to go, well, I'm all right because I'm a vegan. But going, actually, uh, that you can abuse the natural world through the meat industry. You look at the way that, say, you know, things like avocados are grown and shipped halfway around the world. Um, all of us, I think, have a challenge to ask ourselves the question, in the purchases that we're making, particularly the stuff that's on our plates, are we really thinking about those who are impacted, not just in terms of you know, poorer communities and the impact on farming, but also the natural world itself? So yes, I think absolutely. I think that would be taken very, very seriously. Um, now, the challenge is it's very easy to point the finger and go, those guys over there need to sort their lives out. Don't let that drift into Phariseeism. I think we can campaign, but the, the bigger, more challenging question, Michelle, is for your eye to look at the way that we eat and the way that we purchase and go, Am I, is my money reflecting my faith? Um, be an ethical consumer, in other words. So, yeah, I agree with you, absolutely. Okay, over here, what's your, uh, what's your name? Lily. Lily, far away, Lily. Um... Sorry. This may uh, have to be the last question, by the way, because we're on to a 55-second countdown. So I will be at the front at the end for others who have questions, so do hang around. Lily, far away. Last question. Um, what would you answer an atheist if they were going to say, where's your God now, and why is he not stepping in? What a great question. Well, that can be, Lily, that can be applied to basically the natural world, but to any kind of suffering and evil and nonsense in the world. Whenever I have an atheist friend ask that, the first thing I'd start by saying before you leap straight into a clever theological answer, ask some questions back to say, well, what do you mean? Do you, do you think that something's gone wrong with the world? And they'll probably give you an example of something they mean, well, the environment or the war in Ukraine or whatever. And then the interesting question is to go, well, just out of interest, on atheism, what's wrong with that? Because at the end of the day, if there is no God, then human beings are just another animal. Animals behave in particular ways. There's no right, there's no wrong. When the, wolf, when the fox breaks into the chicken coop and tears apart the chickens, we don't go, that's wrong. But when human beings misuse animals, we think it's wrong. So where is your atheist friend getting the moral critique 
from. They're actually sitting on Christian foundations, oddly enough, because that allows you to say the Bible doesn't run away from the fact the world is broken. Nowhere does the Bible say, everything is rosy, everything is great, just don't look that way. The Bible recognizes the world is a crazy, messed up place. So you can talk about that. And then you can say to your atheist friend, it sounds like you're suggesting that God should do something about the, the mess in the world, right? And when they go, yeah. So go, well, he has. That's the whole point of Jesus and the gospel. That gives you a straight line into talking about the cross and what God, has, what God has done. So God has done something. And then God is also working through his people today. And also God has told us the history has a point to it. The end of the history is not everything dying at the end. You see, if an atheism, all of this dies. Everything ends in extinction or the universal heat death at the end of the universe. Christianity says that suffering and evil and injustice and brokenness are not the last word, but new creation is the last word. And we don't just believe that in vain hope. We believe that because of Jesus and the resurrection. But make sure you ask as many questions as they ask you to. Thanks for that last question. We need to wrap it up, but I'll be down at the front shortly. So if there are any other questions, certainly the two of you at the mic, I'm very happy to have a, have a chat.